0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: So, Kathy. Mm Mm-hmm? Here at Nancy, we use the word queer a lot.
2: Queer folks, queer politics, queer art, everything is queer.
1: Yet people have really been embracing this word lately. But it can be really loaded for some folks.
2: There are lots of people in the community who have painful memories around the word but other folks feel very affirmed by it.
1: Mm -hmm. So our dear friend Helen Zaltzman does this awesome podcast called The Illusionist from Radiotopia. Mm -hmm. And every week she digs deep into language, you know, the words we use and the history behind them.
2: This week, we're dropping an episode of our show all about the complicated past and present of
3: the word queer.
1: And bonus, Kathy and I make an appearance.
3: Here's Helen. This is about a word. That currently means a lot of things to different people.
0: So I see queer as an umbrella term, as a political call for revolution, as well as a unity across different groups of people.
4: I think of it with definitely like positive and like loving uh, energy around it. Like I don't think of it as an insult at all. I think growing up, I felt it would have been more of an insult. I think that it was. Uh, in 2015, when we got marriage equality, and just like the way the media, the, especially the LGBTQ plus media, started to phrase "queer" as a more like umbrella loving term that was like just something that we could all kind of be a part of, and so I think I kind of like got the cue from reading and media to know that it was, it was like a gorgeous, amazing word, not like one to be that like we. It's like one that we were taking the love back in. It like wasn't one to be offended by anymore.
2: I haven't always. Loved the term for myself because it feels like an umbrella term that, like, you can use if you're gay and in a relationship with someone of the same sex. Or you can use if you're, like, a basically straight couple that, like, occasionally, like, has a threesome with somebody. Mm -hmm. That's what queer has come to mean is, like, anyone who's thinking a little bit outside the norm.
0: I think it's rejecting things like patriarchy and heteronormativity, right, mandates of morality, uh, not just to be able to keep things gray or to be postmodern, post-category, right, but instead rather to call for a, a true revolution of the way we see the world, the way we categorize the world. Uh, so it's not just about LGBT rights per se, but it's about creating a world that's more uh, respectful of equity and, and thinks about diversity as a plus and values different ideas as a site of radical change rather than fear. I sort of hate it. It's too broad.
1: It's so useful. I mean, especially as there is this proliferation of identities that people can call themselves and identify with and really claim. It's a great way of just sort of acknowledging that it's all in the umbrella. It's just like a way of acknowledging
5: the validity of all the things which I think is great. (laughs) This word has has tortured me. I'm Eric Marcus, and I'm the creator and host of the Making Gay History podcast.
3: The subtitle of Eric's podcast is Bringing the Voices of Queer History to Life. But even so, he struggles with the word queer.
5: Because for me to say the word queer, um, having grown up in an era when the word was the same as calling someone a faggot, um, or a homo. So I'm hardwired to uh, experience the fight or flight response when I hear the word queer. So for me to say the word queer, as I'm doing now, sends all kinds of adrenaline through my system, and all I want to do is, is fight or run. Uh, my name's Tobin.
1: I'm Kathy. We are the co-hosts of Nancy, which is a podcast about all things LGBTQ. Queer. It's
2: queer. It's a queer podcast. So what does the word queer mean to you? To me, I've been using it interchangeably with LGBTQIA.
1: Yeah, I would say the same. I use it as a blanket term to refer to a very wide-ranging community Mm -hmm. and to sort of make the point that I feel uh, unified with those people. And when I say those people, I mean, like, across the community, that it's not just, like me as a gay person, that I feel connected to trans people, intersex, asexual, bisexual, that we're in a community and we should be taking care of each other.
3: Do you self-identify as queer?
2: I do, yeah. I mm-hmm. call myself a queer woman.
1: I identify sexually as gay and maybe, like, politically as queer, mm. if that makes sense. So the yeah. Venn diagram
3: would be queer and then gay would be a subset in the Venn diagram yes. for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But... For some people, this term is not very welcome.
2: Yeah. Well, it wasn't welcome for me when I was younger. I thought it was, I really didn't like the word. I just honestly didn't use it very much in my life. So when I heard it, I was like, I think this is derogatory. So I'm going to see it that way. And so I just really avoided it.
1: It feels like one of those words that you grow up and it's on a list of words you know you're never supposed to say. Yeah, And maybe not everything on that list you know why. It's on that list, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. you just get the information of like, oh, I am never
5: supposed to say this word. I have to be a little more flexible and consider the fact that language is constantly evolving and what may have been a pejorative at one time only has sting if I choose to allow it to, to be so. But that said, for those of us who are older and grew up at a time when that word was hurled at us like a baseball bat, um, we do have uh, a hard wiring in our brains that leaves us uh, a little sensitive to using the word ourselves or hearing it used in conversation and feeling that it's, it's benign. You know, I grew, up, I grew up in such a different time, and the anxieties that went along with being gay in 1976 are still buried deep in my brainstem. So I struggle with As out as I am, and I don't know if you can be much more out than I am, given the work I do, especially. (laughs) I still face issues around my internalized homophobia and my anxiety of how people will react to me if they know I'm gay. I will take that to my grave with me.
3: Queer has been in the English language for at least the past 500 years. For the first 400 or so of those years, it meant strange or oblique, something out of the ordinary. And that meaning would be applied to people, too. Initially for reasons other than sexuality, but by the late 19th century, it was in use to imply that somebody was not behaving heterosexually. The first known written instance of queer as a slur for gay men was in a letter from 1894 by John Douglas, the 9th Marquess of Queensbury, complaining that, I quote, snob queers had corrupted his sons. One of said sons, Francis, had been rumoured to be having a relationship with the Prime Minister, Lord Rosebery. His other son, Alfred, was famously the lover of Oscar Wilde, who was targeted by Queensbury until he was imprisoned in 1895 for gross indecency, which was then a legal term for sexual acts between men. Who knows how or why the Marquess of Queensbury opted for the word queer, or whether he even intended it specifically to mean homosexuals. Probably unbeknownst to him, the word was
0: already being used thus, but not as a slur. The term queer definitely was a flag of same-sex sexuality before queer meant queer as we understand it today. Amy Suyoshi is the Interim Dean of the College of Ethnic Studies
3: at San Francisco State University. As a historian, she specializes in race, gender, and sexuality. And her research has found that as far back as the 1870s, people were describing themselves as queer to denote their sexuality.
0: This idea of sexual identity was not as solidified or firm as we think of it now. And so people would participate in same-sex activities, and they're calling themselves also queer and thinking of their acts as queer. Uh, And it doesn't have the same kind of negative connotation that begins to take hold in the 1950s right when homophobes start yelling queer and things like that why did queer gain that negative connotation and why at that
3: point in time
0: There's a number of key points that happen in the turn of the century, 1890s to 1920s. Uh, Sexology becomes more popular, whereas previously, even after sort of works by uh, Kinsey or Ellis were published, people didn't really read them. And so it's not until several years later that people start reading them in conjunction with, uh, you know, the rise of of cities that have urban areas where lots of folks are congregating, combined with, um, in San Francisco, there's presidios, right, where military congregates large groups of men and they kind of engage in activity that uh, is not conventional, not suspect. And so I think it's the nexus of of all these three things that historians talk about, sort of the rise of uh, gay consciousness or a modern gay identity as we understand it. And as we see more of a modern gay identity coming to the fore, being more public, then the state says, Hey, there's something going on. There's a trend. It looks like more people are queer, and there's, they're forming community around it, and we need to really keep an eye on this, if not shut it down, because it is goes against what we think is the, the key to a democratic society, the heterosexual household. Uh, And so it's in this context, really, that the the rise not only of awareness around gay sexuality and identity comes to the fore, but then the state also begins to worry. And uh, then what do they do with those fears So they start doing things like um, creating anti-sodomy laws. They might have a clause in their books that says uh, crimes against nature, right? But it's not really defined. No one really knows what it is. But then it becomes increasingly defined as more uh, police begin to arrest folks for same-sex sexual activity. In San Francisco, there's an interesting case uh, called the Baker Street Vice Ring. In the uh, 19-teens, a group of pretty well-off white middle-class men, if not richer, are arrested for a fellatio ring where they all gathered on 2525 Baker Street. um, And they sang songs and read poetry on the first floor, and then they gave blowjobs and had anal sex on the second floor. And it went all the way to the California State Supreme Court. There was one particular case where two men were uh, convicted of fellatio. And the judge ruled that the term fellatio was not in common understanding, that it wasn't in English, that in fact it was a word as obscure as Chinese or Japanese characters or Mexican hieroglyphics is what the, is what the judge says. And under the Constitution, you can't be convicted of a crime that is not easily understood or undefinable. And so, all the fellas in the Felatio ring, they were exonerated. That's kind of interesting, right? To think that even in the 19 teens, Felatio is not clearly defined my friends would argue that even today, no one really knows what fellatio means, but... um, I think some people have figured it out for themselves. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I I think that in that early period, it wasn't totally clear what same-sex sexuality was or what people did with each other, yeah.
3: Amy pinpoints the First and Second World Wars as significant for same-gender sexuality, as those allowed large numbers of young men and women to congregate. And also, towns with lots
0: of service personnel flowing through tended to be more liberal. There's this real burgeoning of gay and lesbian culture, right? And as we see gay and lesbian culture burgeoning in the military, people start to freak out. And so there's a public clampdown. Uh, And then, you know, it gets conflated into other other things like the Cold War and how uh, gayness somehow seems like uh, equivalent to communism, right? (laughs) Because communism was seen as
3: subversive and homosexuality was seen as subversive. Therefore, communism and homosexuality were the same, didn't need to make sense to be an excuse to fire gay and lesbian people from
0: government jobs in the 1950s in the US and the UK. It gets then wrapped around sort of xenophobic, homophobic kind of tirades, and queer definitely then began to be used as a sword uh, to vilify uh, people, for sure.
3: And it was around the same time that gay became the predominant term that homosexual men would use to describe themselves. As queer had become such a brickbat, and broadly, queer as a slur was more directed at men.
0: The gay men are more targeted uh, because sort of what they do amongst each other is criminalized more explicitly in the law. It seems like um the law is very concerned about the penis, like what people do with the penis, but they're less concerned if there's no penis involved, um, at least in this early period of. Of persecution, So I do think that uh, queer folks were under severe state uh, as well as a sort of social attack. So uh, social stigma as well as uh, state repression, right? Gay bars literally being invaded, people getting fired from their jobs, right? And in this moment, I think that, you know, radical gays and lesbians as well as trans folks, they rose up and they decided to form this queer umbrella.
1: More on that after the break.
0: Nancy will be back in a minute.
1: Kathy, I want to tell you about one of my actual favorite podcasts, Los Culturistas.
2: You talk about that show all the time.
1: Yeah, it's like hanging out with your smartest, funnest, most pop culture-savvy friends. It's hosted by Bowen Yang, you might know him from SNL or Nora from Queens, and Matt Rogers of Game Show and our cartoon president. Love them. Each week, they interview an amazing guest about the pop culture that shaped their life, and they do this hilarious thing where you can rant about a piece of culture that frustrates you— Mine would be speaking-only roles in musicals. (laughs) Okay.
2: Episodes are released every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to Lost Culturistas on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with an episode of The Illusionist about the word queer.
1: Here's Helen.
3: It did take many years to open up that umbrella. Or even to call it queer. But... A major move towards the words reclamation came in 1990. In March of that year, the activist group Queer Nation had formed, and at a pride march in New York City that June, they handed out a leaflet called Queers Read This, in which they explained, We've chosen to call ourselves queer. Using queer is a way of reminding us how we are perceived by the rest of the world.
0: What's interesting is that in the 1990s, uh, in the wake of HIV/AIDS, you know we see another rise of sort of queer as a way to reclaim the ways in which gay bodies are stigmatized and seen as diseased. And so we take back queer to say, hey, we're queer and we're proud, you know we're deviant, we're proud. We, we don't want to be normal. Queer Nations pamphlet also explains
3: why they rejected the suggestion of using gay as the blanket term for the movement. Queer, unlike gay, doesn't mean male. And when spoken to other gays and lesbians, it's a way of suggesting we close ranks and forget, temporarily, our individual differences, because we face a more insidious common enemy. Yeah, queer can be a rough word, but it is also a sly and ironic weapon we can steal from the homophobe's hands and use against him.
5: There was a school of thought, there is a school of thought, that by, by embracing a word that was used um, in a negative way, that you can rehabilitate the word and take the sting out of it and change it. Um, I don't happen to subscribe to that school. Um, It takes a lot of energy to, to change that. The
0: one thing that's important to remember is that historically uh, gay and lesbian activists actually reclaim the word queer, right? So it's a word that they're choosing for themselves. So if you're gay or lesbian and you want to be called gay and lesbian, then great, call yourself gay and lesbian. You don't need to call yourself queer, right? But it's important for gays and lesbians who dislike the word queer that there's a reason why part of the gay and lesbian population called themselves queer. With anyone who wants to reclaim a negative term, I think it's also about forcing
1: people to recognize the negativity that you never want to like abandon and pretend this thing didn't happen, that it didn't have a really hurtful negative connotation for a long time. So I, I think reclaiming is also about forcing people to reckon with what has happened before and maybe even forcing somebody who might think of it in a negative way, um, or use it in a negative way rather to, uh, I I guess it would be like, if someone thinks of it as a negative thing they can throw at you, if you use it also, it's like (laughs) taking that power away. It's subverting the power structure of the word.
3: Queer has had this gradual, incremental development towards becoming this umbrella term, and it's tricky to find the precise point at which it broadened to encompass gender, expressing trans and non-binary identities. This remains a contention for some, who don't want sexual orientation and gender identity to be united under one term. I
0: love queer because it does kind of blur sexual identity and gender identity. I think that it's a privilege for folks to be able to separate sexuality and gender. Most of us live with it overlapping.
2: I would also say that I know that some people don't like the word queer, not because they have um, a negative association with it, but because they really crave a very individualized like, focus label, that makes them feel like they're seen. And, I mean, that's fine, too. That's why you don't want to use the word queer. I get that.
4: Can you understand me? Like, can I understand you? Why can't I be queer and be a cis gay man? And I think we can claim both.
0: There's a way in which... Uh, queer politics really defines this larger community where gay men and lesbians and other folks can come together and create this unified, formidable force to change society. Um, and in that way, I've always found queer to be uh, productive, not just for obviously gays and lesbians, but other all folks who are in the queer community that, that also don't fit those neat categories.
2: One of the reasons I personally identify as queer is because um it's a shortcut in trying to tell people what my identity is um because i i would say i identify as a bisexual person but i don't date men and immediately people are like well that's not that's not bi <laughs> but the thing is like i don't i don't date men because i don't fall in love with them and so the easiest thing for me is to say that i identify as a lesbian but then they're like but are you
1: though <laughs> You have a lot of people defining you for you. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. I identify as queer instead of having to explain the whole backstory. And maybe I don't really honestly crave a singular label
3: like some people do, which, like, it's totally okay if you do. It's okay if you don't. And people who have no real business in your life. Yeah. Why are they so anxious to Well, I think it might be because
2: we
1: host the podcast about (laughs) queer life. To be fair, we invite some of it. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm because like, we we're bear. queer. And then they're like, well, what kind? <laughs> They've um, really zeroed in on certain things. Like, I've been asked so many times, like, what did I mean in our very first episode when I said I'm not completely gay? Which was my attempt at explaining to my mom this very fuzzy in middle ground that I actually live in. Mm. Not
3: that you have
1: a heterosexual knee. <laughs> 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 Yes. <laughs> uh, for me, I have the most heteronormative feet. You know? <laughs> They're just straight as can be, my feet. Nothing I can do about it. In the late
3: 1980s, people started using initialisms to refer to identities that aren't heterosexual and cisgender. First there was LGB, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or GLB, gay, lesbian, bisexual. Then expanding to LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, LGBTQIA, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, intersex, asexual, And the initialism keeps expanding to represent more identities. LGBT, plus lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, trans, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, allied, gender non-conforming plus.
4: It's so long. Easier to have one syllable. Yeah. And it's just like a way for us to come together. I think as like marginalized people, it's important to be able to come together as a family. And so it's like, let's like try to be like more connected and separated.
3: So now, to express spectrums of sexual orientations and gender without having to provide specific categories or an impractically long list of initials, many will just use the word queer instead.
5: I think that um, the wonderful thing about this one word, um, and I'm really pushing myself to say the wonderful things about this word.
3: You're re- really making a lot of progress today,
5: Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's cathartic. is better than my therapy session. <laughs> um, I think the wonderful thing about the word is it does not make distinctions between gender identity, sexual orientation. We are all so different, and as we continue to evolve in our understanding about sexuality and gender expression, the uh, cumbersome salad of letters to identify the different variations on the human theme will become completely unwieldy. Um, And just to add the, the plus sign at the end of a long list of letters, Is gonna leave somebody left out will leave people feeling slighted. So yeah, by having one word that's inclusive, people feel included. By the same token, there are people who feel excluded by not being identified explicitly.
1: I feel like a lot of people are very scared at this moment to just ask someone like, How do you identify? or like how what's your what is your truth or whatever. And and I think that There's no shame or no fear in asking that question if you're coming from a place of respect, of like, I want to respect you the way you want to be respected. So I think if someone uses the word queer for themselves and you feel weird about it, Mm -hmm. it's not that big a deal to be like, is it cool if I also refer to you as queer? Is that kosher? Or like, how would you prefer I refer to you? I think that there's a lot of stigma around that conversation. And as long as you're being respectful about it, I think that's totally fine to ask.
5: I think in that regard, it's terrific that, that young people growing up do have the breadth of options in terms of their gender expression and their sexuality ex- expression that, that I didn't have growing up. It was, uh, there, were, <laughs> there weren't many choices at all. I think it also offers challenges. And I've watched uh, the children of friends grow up and some have struggled mightily with, with great confusion over themselves um, and feeling that they needed to declare one way or another. And the word queer does simply give them the option to make it a placeholder. So you can say, I'm queer. And then you can figure out along the way, as you grow through your adolescence, where you fit within the subcategories if you choose to place yourself in one of those subcategories. These are all social constructs. Aside from behavior, the labels are something we've made up. Um, And why should young people, why should any people be bound by these conventions which are artificial to start with? So the word queer or a word that takes in all of the variations of humanity is not a bad thing. I just wish it weren't the word queer, (laughs) that's all.
1: This episode was produced by Helen Zaltzman. Music and production help by Martin Ostwick. Special thanks to Caroline Crampton, Dan Hall, Dave Pickering, Phoebe Judge, Eleanor McDowell, as well as Jared Koskovich and Nalini Elias at the GLBT History Museum in San Francisco.
2: You can find The Illusionist on Facebook and Twitter. Illusionist Show is the handle. And at illusionist.org.
1: I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Tu. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios.